I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing, rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires. Many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right, here we are on Ditch Digger CEO today. Got my buddy Quentin at my side again. I lost him the, la- the last one. I, <laughs> I, I had a last-minute uh, schedule and, and lost my buddy Quentin. You and didn't had, lose me, man. We were amplifying the, the impact, brother. Yeah, I had uh, I had a uh, I had Nick in here, Nick Lodge. Who he did, did a, good. Did a good job. Oh, man. You know, we forgot a few things without you, I got to tell you. But overall, he did a good job. Um, but uh, today we got uh, uh, my good friend Tony Saliba, who... Uh, um, Tony, I admire. I've admired for the last uh, probably seven, eight years. I've, I've ran into to Tony on a, in a few fronts with some organizations that I that I that I aspired to be part of, and and uh, and, and, and had the, had the blessings uh, to to be able to spend some time with you, Tony. And, and recently, on a on a on a trip to Florida and an organization that that uh, we both support to to go to go there and support that again. And, um, just gotta say, I, I, I'm I'm proud to be a friend of yours, um, and and uh, really excited to have you on board today, Tony. Inter- introduce yourself, buddy. Thanks, Gary. Um, hi, everybody. Tony Saliba here. Um, local guy. Uh, came from uh, uh, small beginnings. Um, born into a, a household that mom and dad scrapped to pull things together, wrong side of the tracks, if you will. And um, I'm the oldest of seven. Wow. Everybody's still here in the Chicagoland area. And we've, um, you know, I'm blessed with a great family. I've got uh, a wonderful wife and two beautiful children, teenagers, um, just uh, building businesses. Um, Gary and I have a lot of parallels. I've listened to most of the podcast so far and uh you know obviously a lot of gary's life has um uh um, touched those podcasts and i would say gary and i have uh a lot of similarities in the way we do things tony uh start from there buddy start well start from the upbringing because i uh you know i uh heard a little bit about your story and 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 i love it um start with that upbringing right think of seven kids right and and uh 
and, and oldest that, of seven. Yeah. My mom was uh, barely nineteen when I was born. Um, dad was a carpenter's apprentice, uh, apprentice uh, a couple years older than her, and um, she pretty much was uh, pregnant. Um, she had nine pregnancies in eleven years. Wow, <laughs> poor thing. Wow, yeah, two, two miscarriages. Oh, uh, wow. She rests in peace as of the last uh, six and a half years. A wonderful woman gave me uh, a lot of my drive because my dad worked two jobs. Um, he was a carpenter by day. I would see him for five minutes uh, when he came home to uh, get out of his uh, dry coveralls and put on his greasy coveralls to go pump gas and change oil at the pure oil station uh, in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, if I wasn't a night owl, I've been sleeping um, between four and four and a half hours a night uh, as long as I can remember. If I wasn't a night owl, I wouldn't see him when he came home at night. But, um, you know, he's still with us doing great. Uh, So we've been able to pretty much once I got into college, he and I, formed a better relationship because I understood how hard he worked just to feed and clothe uh, the seven of us. Um, And, um, you know, I became an entrepreneur very young. I would say I was uh, about seven, maybe. And I maybe a little bit younger, but I remember there was a, um, and you guys might remember this, I'm sure the audience uh, will remember, there was a card company where um, you can gain points by selling Christmas cards, and then they branched into other um, uh, holidays. But uh, you'd get a big uh, book of Christmas cards, and the points uh, you you uh, earn through selling these, they had some pretty cool uh, prizes. And I had my heart set on a bicycle, a three-speed bicycle, because we... I mean, even though we grew up in Ravinia back then, I mean, I was, you know, born in 55. And um, back then you had the haves and have nots and there was an enclave in Ravinia, which were mostly the uh, tradesmen's families, uh, you know, carpenters, um, uh, plumbers and electricians. And so I went around and sold uh, Christmas cards massively uh, at the age of seven. So, so, so Tony, I, I remember that. I mean, there's like electronics you get through that, right? And then there's Absolutely. and the, and then a three speed bike with the with the uh, with the, uh, the 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 long forks, a short fork, right? You could get whatever <laughs> yes. there. You had the, you had the did you have, right? A Raleigh three speed bike was like the bomb, right? Did you have a shifter on that thing? I mean, for the three speed, like remember the shifter they used to have? Yeah, they were aftermarket shifters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I I remember that stuff. I remember like I like the electronics, and and I I I had uh, you know seen this before, and then the electron they had a book of all kinds of cool stuff, right? Cool. Yeah, like radio. a transistor radio transistor was. Transistor radio like was the, a big deal. A radio, the biggest wow. deal, right? And uh, <laughs> big you know, deal. 62, 63, right? Yeah, we've we've came a long way. You said three speed. I was like, I don't even know what that is. So I remember so. this stuff. <laughs> this this went on into the uh, in the late sixties, early seventies, right? This this yes, uh, program it, because well, I, I imagine saw it, it continued. Yeah, I actually was a paver myself in uh, high school. I would get a bucket of uh, of the coating, a couple buckets of coating, and uh, do driveways. And wow. I, I 
I did that summers uh, uh, around caddying. Well, you know? hey, get this straight. You were a, you were a pavement maintenance guy. You weren't really a paver. <laughs> you were a pavement. You were you're doing right, seal right. coating. Just, so you're a pavement maintenance professional. Maintenance. <laughs> yeah. Right. And you bought that at True Value or something like that, or Ace? Those buckets. Ace. Yeah, it was Ace, right? Mm-hmm. So, Tony, let me ask you a question quickly. So, with all of the entrepreneurial, like you know, obviously you going door to door to get your amazing bike, and obviously you know, uh, being a maintenance paver, Gary. Right? All yep. of these things yep. are when you were younger. What did it teach you? What did it teach you about business? What did it teach you about uh, grit? What did it teach you about you know having you know uh, working hard for what you wanted to accomplish young? That you know, what did it give you that you think well, most people don't get now? Well, at the time. I was, you know, the number two earner in my family, and my mother, she would be standing at the door when I came home from caddying or whatever, and I, we got, you know, paid four dollars and fifty cents to carry a bag. So she'd take the paper money, and I'd uh, keep the, the the quarters, and it taught me to save. It taught me, you know, to um, exchange my labor and my, uh, you know, ideas, uh, into, um, capital, into money. So, um, but it also, one of the big things that I think, uh, the youth today are missing to a great degree is interacting with adults. Boy, boy, and, how about that? Yeah. In a workplace environment. Boy, you, know? you, you just said something there, $4 and 50 cents to carry a bag for 18 holes. So think about that. Four and a half, five and a half, sometimes six hours for four dollars and fifty cents, right? But but the lesson, so so you know, I, I we I pretty much we put put a, put a caddy program in place at our golf club when we when we first got involved in it, my wife and I, and and we had a bunch of you know a handful of people that were totally against it, and a lot, a lot of people not really for it or against it, and then a few that were for it, right? But I'm telling you right now that the relationships gained for these young kids and the and the emotional intelligence that that's created through the interaction with adults right carrying those those bags for four five six hours is invaluable now not to say there's not some people that are golfers that don't talk to the kids or don't really you know don't treat them that well in my course i believe we got great people and they do right but but you are killing it man you that is absolutely that's it yeah think about that think about the yeah you know you, you didn't make it much money but think of the 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 education you got in, in communication with adults, huh? right, right, Tony? I have goosebumps right now. So, what, what, what would you say the the quality, not, not the quality, but the um, the value? So, like, if it's four fifty now today, what would that be? Well, it might be. It depends on the club, right? If it's a if it's a high end club, I mean, our our people are very generous. So these kids are getting anywhere from sixty to, I would say, fifty on the low end to to hundred bucks, hundred twenty bucks around. Yeah. So if you look at that, that's one hundred and twenty dollars for thought process mindset and quality connections you can't get that anywhere oh oh it's huge yeah well you know i was saying to chris earlier i was looking at some of your sample questions and uh, you know i i i have not had a mentor in my life since caddying i mean Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine and i spent a lot of time you know people say are you a person that lives in the present in the future in the past so i'm very careful not to dwell in, you know, one or the other too uh, often. So I'm constantly reviewing my past. I'm constantly thinking about where we want to go. But I'm also, you know, savoring what we're doing right now. And when I review my past, I, I had no mentors besides the people I caddied for. Mm-hmm. And that was worth because, you know, my dad, my mom pretty much raised us. My dad 
worked night and day to, you know, feed us and clothe us. And um, I had about um, $17,000 saved up when I was a senior in high school. Um, And that was 1973. And I was, you know, I knew if I was going to go to college, I was either going to pay for it myself. I was the first person in my family to go to school. That's, that's like equivalent to 200000 200, today, probably. I'm got you know if you if you really did the math, and uh, that's amazing. And and I was either going to get the Evans scholarship or pay for it myself. And I ended up um, getting the the Evans after a year um, uh, my own to get my grades up because, you know, I didn't. Uh, excel in school in high school I was a uh, you know B student and they you know uh, took only the top 25% of your graduating high school class so they said go to school on um, on your own for a year and I mm-hmm. did I got my grades up and got the scholarship awesome um, but you know that mentorship guys came from uh, the men and women I caddied for a Northmore Country Club I, I was uh, uh, I was there first every day uh, I, I was the last one to go home at night. Sometimes I would go 54 holes. Uh, <laughs> I would pick up the latest loop just to, you know, scrounge for money. But also I had great conversations with, um, you know, George Abrams and Mrs. Richland and all these people who've passed on, obviously, from now. But they they had this little Italian kid. It was a Jewish country club. And they, you know, pretty much took me under their wings. I did odd jobs for them in the winter. Um, it, that was my, you know, uh, I caddied for uh, nine years. I, oh. I worked road construction um, a couple years in uh, college, but I still went went and made a loop whenever I could to, to keep that connection. Huh. And my mentorship came from there. Awesome. Awesome. There, there you go. I mean, that's that's a uh, testament to the Seven Scholarship Program. We, you know, it took us a while, Tony, to get to get a legitimate caddy program in place at Bull Valley um, before you know Evan Scholarships, uh, the Evan, Evans program would consider us. And uh, in, a, in a year, about uh, it's only a year and a half ago, had our first Evan Scholar, and uh, boy, we're so excited that we we're getting that stuff done at Bull Valley, a club that didn't didn't have any much of this before, and and uh, wasn't in the caddies and. And it's it's so cool to see this young man Ryan who who just worked his butt off and and you know didn't wasn't going to have you know set of parents great parents but parents that were going to be able to afford to send him to a great college and bottom line is he's he's at U of I in a full ride engineering scholarship the kid's smart as can be still still doing his loops every chance he gets at Bull Valley but I mean what a, it's just such a cool thing to to watch uh, hardworking kids be rewarded with this seven scholarship program and then they have the network for life that's incredible. Right. So it's really I, awesome. You're you're nailing it. I mean, it's it's the best. And, um, you know, I'm a WGA director. I'm actively involved in in actually helping um, um, a couple of young candidates right now with their interview process. Uh, I, you know, support the organization financially any way I can. It's the best. It's, it's well, so, a full ride, you know, you can't get a scholarship as as good as it, uh, even if you're a top athlete. It, no. It's housing, everything. So, it, so know, what you know. what is this? You you become a you know amazing entrepreneur, amazing businessman from the the mentoring you got. But 
I can't get your butt out to golf or, uh, <laughs> ever. I mean, I'll yeah. for you. I, I, I tell you, I respect the game too you, much. You've sent uh, you. you I, I've I've got to know your brother well. You know, I got I've got to know your brother and your nephew well, and it's uh, it, and they're they're awesome people, and and it and it's fun. It was fun getting out with them the times I have. Um, but I'm like, hey, well, let's, what, what do we get Tony out here? What's with that? You know? Well, you know, I play military golf, Gary. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, right, left. Right, left, yeah. right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was decent as a teen, but I, I can't get my workaday world off my mind. And uh-huh. I can hit the ball a ton off the tee, and then I just chop it up all the way to the hole. So forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're still going to try to get you out there. We, 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 right, hey, I, we need your we need, we need you mentoring some caddies on on the course. Forget about your game. We need your mind on the course mentoring the next the next uh, Tony Saliba, dude. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, so so now you go into uh, you know, I mean these little businesses you did as a young man and and to save that kind of money is incredible. Um, you know after you know during college after college tell us where you you know where you went and. And uh, what the, what the next steps uh, were were in this uh, in this entrepreneur entrepreneurial dream? Well, I went so I went to Indiana University and um, got heavily involved in the Indiana University Student Foundation I IUSF and pretty much um, got to you know networked I got, which was not a term back then but I got to meet uh, a lot of people of, of my own age. And also um, adults, you know, that were uh, I, IUSF is the uh, student arm of the fundraising organization IU Foundation, which um, you know um, helps the school raise a lot of money. So we had a lot of activities. We put on the little 500. I was on the steering committee. I was um, one of the uh, first Evan scholars to ever be on the steering committee. Which you know, this is a uh, well, at the time, that was 1975 or six. It was a 25-year-old program. It was uh, you know blue blood, aristocratic sort of um, uh, program. So it kind of broke through the you know uh, class lines there and became one of the uh, hard scrabble kids, so to speak. You know, not not saying that that my life in suburban Chicago was such as that, but compared to all these. Uh, sons and daughters of uh, aristocratic Indiana families, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, uh, kind of embarrassed to say that I was on a scholarship, you know, for being poor and a caddy, but um, learned a lot. Another, you know, uh, 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 carry on from my uh, uh, caddying days, I, I didn't really have a mentor there, but I pulled whatever I could out of whomever I could uh, whether they, you know, were actually taking the time to mentor me, mm-hmm. um, had a great, um, great time at Indiana. Um, I got my first job out of school and got a degree in accounting, but I didn't really like it. So I went to work as a, uh, uh, a stockbroker. And these are the, you know, malaise days of, uh, Jimmy Carter, where, a big day on the New York Stock Exchange, volume-wise, would be like 11 million shares, and we do that in the first uh, uh, 50 microseconds of a day today. <laughs> wow! But, you know, here I am, a a uh, kid from Chicago, driving around in a '66 uh, uh, Ford Falcon station wagon that was all uh, rusted out, 
uh, going from farmhouse to farmhouse trying to sell economic bonds uh, in, you know, the age of uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, uh, high interest rates and uh, high inflation. And, and these people would look at me like I was crazy. So I would come back to the office and I said, who makes all the money in this business? And they said, you got to be down on the floor. And I said, the floor? How much, like you're, the how, much how much you're making initially there, Tony? I, I went to work for um, $800 a month, which was uh, a lot of money. I mean, for me, obviously. And the guys I caddied for at Northmore were all businessmen, entrepreneurs, and brokers. Bean brokers and bond brokers uh, and corn brokers and traders on the Board of Trade. So when the guy said, you got to go down, to, you have to be on the floor to make all the money, I said, see, guys, I'm going back home. And I <laughs> clerked. Um, so so I, what I had done in my summer, the uh, summer of my uh, senior year, is I studied about this new product called Options. And um, I, I kind of got the hang of it. And I made um, one of the customers of my um, uh, of my partner, if you will, he was, I was his assistant at the brokerage. It was in Indianapolis. And I made this uh, family, a father and son um, account, uh, like $50,000 in about a three month period. And the, they were from Highland Park. And, you know, I, I, the, the accent was so familiar. Uh, I said, where are you guys from? You know, it's from Chicago. And we started bonding. And the father said, well, you made us 50 grand, but you made 50 grand for the company, too, in commissions. Is there a way we can do what you're doing for us, Tony, and cut back the commissions? And I saw my opening, mm. Gary and Quentin, uh. and I said, get me on the floor <laughs> and I can save you commissions. So I was off to the races. Now, I, I clerked for a few months. Um, to kind of get up to speed on the actual functionality of transacting, and um, how old how old were you at this point, Tony? I was uh, that was 1978, so I was 23, oh, and man. options were five years old at the time. Uh, listed options, and so I was going to go to work for these guys, or I was going to have a partnership with these guys, and there was a bunch of guys from my high school down clerking down on the floor and one of the older guys said you know you shouldn't be partners with them because if they complain when you're making money they're going to be terrible if you ever lose money so i clerked for a guy who i met when i was in in indianapolis and we're still friends today and while i was clerking for him a guy i caddied for Came, he was down on the floor. He had sold his business and basically was, he passed away a few years ago in his mid-90s, uh, God rest his soul. And he came to me, uh, Julian Good, and said, hey, Saliba, I remember you from the from the course. And I totally, you know, remember Julian. I cared for him regularly, you know, just five years earlier. And I said, and he said, you know what you're doing down here? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, could you make me some money? So I put a spread on for him. And three days later, I ran over to where he stood. And he was just basically a voyeur, 
just dabbling and didn't really know anything about it. Um, but there was a lot of guys down there just getting away from their household lives and, mm -hmm. you know, just uh, kibitzing with each other. And I made them, a, the, the spread made a lot of money uh, percentage wise in, in three days. And I said, Julian, Julian, it's time to take the spread off. And he goes, can you do that again? And I said, yeah, get me on a seat and um, I'll do it for you. And we were partners for about uh, four years. I made them um, half a million bucks and <laughs> bought them out of uh, our, our partnership. And to the day we, we talked, we talked about a few months before he passed away, and he said, you know, I should have never let you buy me out of the because you, you, were the one, you were the one that got away from me. And, uh, you know, so. So, uh, so, yeah. so, so, Tony, the spread. Tell me more about the spread. I'm sorry? So I said, tell me more about the spread. Oh, the spread. Yeah. So, um, so I traded in Teledyne, which back then, guys, there were no in no indices to trade there there was um no future yet on the s p 500 you didn't have etfs this was <clears throat> where <clears throat> teledyne uh ibm uh honeywell uh digital equipment eastman kodak were all proxies for the market in general okay and so uh teledyne was a very illiquid uh uh stock but it moved with the market and when there was anticipation one way or the other they would come for teledyne so you would put on what's called a volatility spread and that would mean that you would have volatility working for you so you would be long some premium you would be ratioed uh, long uh, long versus short and um you know we were in high volatility period so i put on this uh it was a uh a diagonal uh, call spread that was ratioed the stock moved up. We made made a bunch of money quickly on it. So he probably risked about uh, $200 a unit. I forget exactly. It wasn't a very big. Maybe he put it on like 25 by 35 or something. So so he risked literally like five grand, and we made um, five or eight thousand dollars. I have the tickets somewhere. I save everything. <laughs> and um, uh, and he was just shocked at the speed of which we could do this. And then I went, you know, when I when I was his partner, the one thing I wanted was I wanted a 50-50 deal. I just wanted to be equal with him. And, uh, and he said, fine. And then after we made, you know, the first bit of money, I just said, you know, we, we should probably make this more or less uh, more like uh, two thirds, one third, and then after a few years, when his, his share, well, I was also paying him for his seat. So um, after it got up to uh, half a million bucks, I just said, you know, I want to, uh, I want to go on my own, and he he let me go on my own. So um, just a follow up question on that. So I know a lot of people, especially those who partner together in business. When it gets to a position of, um, I guess, like your equal partnership, and then it's starting to sway maybe to your side and, or sway to one side or the other, did it have any tension with you all's relationship back then? How do you, um, I guess, easily transition somebody out of a business? Amicably. That, yeah, right. I guess that's a better word yeah. for it. Um, because yeah, yeah. Cause, cause I know business is always tough, and they always say they don't try to make business personal, but sometimes um, 
that's going to happen, especially in, in a situation like that. Yes. Um, well, it, it all ties into, so I've been a mentor. So my, my very first clerk, I taught him what I was doing and put him on a seat. And I learned from my experience and I wanted to avoid, there was, you know, two rough experiences. The group, the father and son who were kind of, I, I don't want to say they were, they were um, poor winners, uh, although the, you know, it wasn't the son. The son was a contemporary of mine and it, it was his dad that was going to be difficult. And, you know, he's passed on um, a, quite a while ago, but um, that was a rough experience. Quentin and I wanted to avoid that. And then the one that I had with Julian where, you know, he expected that I was going to be his um, cash cow for the rest of his life. And, you know, it just it just doesn't work that way down on the floor. So I set up my deals with my clerks that if, um, you know, and I've, I've created a number of businesses since then uh in and around trading and some that aren't related to trading at all but i did uh start a business to train traders and that still goes on today it's uh um, august will be the 30-year anniversary of it international trading institute and i set up my program with my clerks that we would start out um 60 40 60 to the house 40 to them okay and then uh, gradually, they would earn percent by by the production, and believe me, they didn't all uh, become successful. Uh, this probably was uh, overly generous to start there because th- there's a, a, a big learning curve in trading. And um, but uh, I would say that those that um, hit the ball out of the park through my mentoring and you know I, I built a, um, uh, a simulator, a voice activated simulator. I got into uh, technology in 1984. Uh, mainly, uh, when I die, my son's gonna put on my um, uh, tombstone, uh, necessity was the mother of invention, because I needed to do this. And when, when I, um, in, in 1984, I, so I, I got on, and I know I'm kind of bouncing around on this, but in in eighty in seventy nine when I was trading, I began um, a service with a mainframe to help me uh, crunch my positions faster. And I met some guys that worked at Metro uh, uh, Computer Company downtown. And then in eighty four, I asked one of those guys if they knew any programmers, and I, I hired an old. Um, COBOL programmer uh, uh, to learn DOS and build a program for me to, I, I was a, a big trader. I was one of the biggest on the floor and I had giant positions and it took me a long time to go through my very specific and unique style of breaking down my position. And so I wanted to build a, a computer program uh, for that. And everybody told me, you can't do that. PCs are personal computers. They're not for business. I said, fine, I'll just do it when I'm home. And so, so I got, I built my first program in 84 and I taught all of my clerks how to use the program. And then from there I branched into, you know, technology, but my, my, um, my clerks had to, um, 
I, to answer your question, Quentin, I avoided that situation um, that I had with my backer by spelling it out very uh, meticulously up front and saying, look, if you're if you're good, if you're not if you're not a good trader, you're going to be out within a certain period of time because we're going to cull the field here. But we're going to do everything we can, including uh, giving them capital, giving them the technology that was new at the time. Uh, giving them uh, uh, assistance. Everybody got their own clerk. And at one point, I had about 27 traders on the floor trading my capital. Um, but then they would be able, they would literally make a decision when it got down to 90-10 to them, and they had enough capital whether they wanted to go on their own. But the way I looked at it is the services that they got from us were well worth it. And I had a bunch of prize fighters that I was, you know, had made a, a a bunch of money on and taking only 10% of their um, of their winnings uh, was a was a great deal for them. So uh, I did that. That's you know, awesome. Through, through the 80s and uh, early 90s. And and what and you start so you started out the 80s and you're let's say you're making how much on the floor on a daily basis and what you know you know what were your at what was your average day at the at the end of that at the end of that well, run? So so um, I went. Um, 70 months, went 70 straight months of $100,000 a month or uh, or more. I was going to ask you about that. I saw that. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Oh, I don't get it. Wait. Se 70 months of 100... 70 consecutive months. Consecutive months. Of? Of $100,000 plus. Of $100,000 uh, uh, profits or more. 70,000. I mean, per, 70 months. Per month? Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so it's more about consistency. Now... Um, I think I sent um, Chris. So there was a, a weird situation. So in in '84, I'm um, I'm 29. Uh, you know, I made I hit my target of being a millionaire before I was 25, and that was in uh, 1980. Well, it was actually in '81, but I hadn't turned. Um, uh, I hadn't turned 26 yet, so um, <laughs> I I popped my head out and realized, you know, this great thing called options trading. Uh, I was a member of the CBOE. I had memberships on other exchanges, but I wanted to give back, quote unquote, give back, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I got heavily involved in exchange um, uh, organization. I went on road shows with the exchange. I was in into marketing. I was involved in the um, very new market performance committee. It was the forerunner of any uh, regulatory compliance that we have today. Uh, and um, I felt that market makers needed to address the order flow of the client base to a greater degree. So through all this, um, I, you know, became part of the exchange fabric. I was uh, the youngest member of the um, uh, board of directors of the CBOE. And then in um, 87, uh, summer of 87, uh, somebody from uh, upstairs, seventh floors, where all the senior um, CBOE officials had their offices, somebody from the seventh floor called down and said, there's a, um, a writer that's going to do a story on uh, market making, um, you want to uh, you want to be a candidate to um, be interviewed for this. So here I am thinking, well, you know, this is an instructional um, 
story, you know, how to, uh, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll raise my hand. Well, um, in August, this gentleman named, uh, Edmund Andrews, uh, called me up and we're trying to figure out, you know, what, what would work calendar wise. And, you know, I was a single guy traveled, uh, uh, a bit and, um, we arrived at, um, October 20th is the first day that our calendars matched where he could, he was um, based in uh, Washington um, and he was a freelance writer um, where he could come and, and meet with me. And then I forgot about it. Okay. Well, the market fell apart. You guys all, I'm sure your listeners are fully aware of the uh, 87 crash and that begun the week before that and really crescendoed on Black Monday, the 19th. And I get a call uh, after the close, and the guy says, um, Anthony, uh, it's Edmund Andrews. Um, what time uh, do you start tomorrow morning? I'm like, oh my God, I forgot I had set this up literally two months <laughs> earlier, and here I had um, basically a fox in the hen house. I had a journalist who showed up at uh, like 6.30 in the morning on Tuesday, and he shadowed me all that day, all the next day, and he was like dropped into the eye of a hurricane <laughs> on, you know, ground zero, and wrote wrote everything that we did during you know this very you know who, who knew how historical it was going to be i mean what happened in those days blows away any volatility we have nowadays we, you know, we didn't have the systems we didn't have the liquidity so um he wrote this story and then a couple weeks later um uh, i mean he he was writing a story i didn't really know what he was writing a couple weeks later, he called me and he said, um, Success, Success Magazine, which was a big deal back then, wants to put you on the cover of their uh, January issue. And I sent that to Chris, um, but... Um, I, like, I, like, I like the stash, buddy. I like, <laughs> I like the stash. You like that? <laughs> yeah, I've changed it a bit since then, but... Um, I know it, I know it. You know, I, I grew my mustache in the winter of 78 when I was a clerk and um, we had the biggest snow and you can check it out. It was the biggest snow on record. Uh, Michael Belandic was the mayor. He lost the mayoral ship to Jane Byrne because he messed up snow removal. And we had we we had no time to really, uh, you know, shave and clean up and dress up as clerks because we had to be be there at old dark 30 and we worked long hours so i just decided you know what i'm gonna prevent this 10 minutes or 15 minutes of my day by growing a mustache and i've i literally had a mustache now for 40 years <laughs> because of that. um so this guy was uh in our midst uh quentin and he wrote this huge story and and they they used that cover for their ad campaign for years to come i would go to new york and my picture would be on the side of a bus, that cover. <laughs> that was their mailer. I have, I have uh, postcards that they would send out trying to get subscriptions 
with that cover as the um, um, spot, uh, the the focus of the uh, uh, ad. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this streak, this 70-month streak of 100,000, because I know some people who are traders can't even get to 100,000 one time, you know, the, and, and more so, and, and I guess let me dive into it specifically, the consistency aspect. I think a lot of people who are <clears throat> um, business owners, whether, you know, want to generate a lot of revenue, but consistency um, is extremely difficult, whether it be in business or even, you know, and I would definitely say as a trader, um, how did you do that? Like, what what did you put in place? What, you know, parameters did you know? Like, hey, you know, um, I'm just, that's just amazing, man. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, how did you do that? Well, thanks for recognizing, recognizing that, Quentin, because um, the, one of the questions that you guys uh, um, sort of forecasted in your on your website was, you know, what qualities or what characteristics um, do you see as, um, um, you know, really important uh, as a leader? And one is discipline uh, and one is empathy. But the discipline part, um, I learned very early on before anyone else uh, did or very, very few did on how to trade um, almost risk-free, okay, almost risk-free. Now, people who trade today will say, oh, it was way easier back then because you didn't have, you know, the competition you have today. Because today, it's a, a trading, market making is what, what I did. Market making today is a very much of a big combine sort of business that only the largest institutions uh, do massively and well. Yes, true. The competition back then compared to today was nil. But we didn't have computers. We did everything in our head. We were all equal in that regard. I prepared every night. I did my homework religiously. It's It's been written about. I was just, um, because of that article by Edmund Andrews, Jack Schwager noticed me. I was the only um, uh, options trader in his seminal a uh, book called Market Wizards, which came out 30 years ago this March. Um, and the consistency, Quentin, was because I developed a style of trading that was extremely low risk and required a, a being, you know, uh, fast and first and uh, very attentive. And the reason why I was able to do so well was because uh, because I did my homework, because I um, worked the uh, order flow providers, I would speak with the Goldman Sachs representatives. I was taking you know our business out of the pit and giving myself as much of an advantage, which was there for everyone to do, but you know, I have to say that um, in the early days when I was trading Teledyne, those guys didn't have the uh, proclivity to do that. In the later days when I was trading the S&P 500, which I was one of only three or four guys who weren't part of a big combine, because in the late 80s, the combine started setting in with um, O'Connor and Associates and Chicago Research and Trade 
and the forerunners to uh, the big groups that are, are there today. Um, so I invested a lot personally in doing my homework. I told you about the, the software I created early on that helped me manage these giant positions. And I was low risk. So although I didn't make the big hits on some days as some of my colleagues or you know uh, co cohorts on the floor would do i never had big losing days mm. um, i had a lot of sleepless nights when my position got too big on certain occasions um but um it was that discipline that allowed me to um avoid the big losing days and then when the market exploded, I mean, I've, I've written about this, or it was, it's been written about in Market Wizards and other uh, publications about my explosion uh, strategies, which I, I did my market making to tread water and collect edge to pay for the premium of these positions that would pay off if and when the market moved big. And, and Nassim Taleb, who um, is an author, wrote uh, seminal, um, uh, he's a, a big thinker, philosopher, uh, trader, wrote Black Swan, was a guy that um, um, I met, uh, his mother shares uh, my father's last name, so we think we're can you cousins. Say, can you say that name again? Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, that's uh, N-A-S-S-I-M, uh, Nicholas uh, uh, Taleb, T-A-L-E-B, and um, in, in, the, in the late 80s, he came to Chicago. I, I had a partnership with a French bank. We got to know each other. Uh, we would go out, two, two single guys would go out and debate uh, options uh, theory and strategy, uh, jump to fusion in pricing. Uh, very technical things, and he took things from a technical standpoint. I was, you know, blood and guts in the pit, but I, you know, understood um, uh, uh, theoretical pricing. I traded what uh, I described as relative pricing, and um, he went on to trade this explosion trading, which today is called, you know, uh, tails, looking for fat tails, where you have um, statistically uh, edge events that are um, outliers and you you know you've had them speckled you had one last year you you've had um, some of that in the fall in in December um, uh, last year so these big moves allow you to really clean up so the answer Quentin was a, a foundational base of low risk every day and then a move every now and then that would would uh, allow for your positions to uh, mature and become very profitable. And that's that's uh, hmm. you know I taught a lot of guys how to do that. Now that's more difficult to do today with uh, the, the huge amounts of capital in these combine market making organizations like um, uh, Susquehanna and Citadel and Wolverine and Peak Six or, you know, Simplex. These are big shops that are predominantly um, uh, computer-driven uh, pricing algorithms that measure their speed in uh, microseconds 
and um, sometimes even in uh, nanoseconds. And that's that's more my business today is delivering technology to uh, groups like that. Okay, so so when we think about all that, you know, there's a time that this this all changed drastically in in the and you can tell me when in the 2000s or early 2000s whatever it was and when when the old school kind of got surpassed by the new school you you exited uh, a business back uh kind of at, at this at this uh pivot point didn't you or tell, tell us about that yes well so i um you know once again necessity being the mother of invention i sought out um in the late, after the market crashed, I uh, was looking for a multimedia experience to train. I just didn't want to keep training my uh, clerks myself. So I was looking for, you know, um, uh, recordings, um, um, uh, multiple choice inventory testing, um, using some of the software that we uh, were working on to come up with a multimedia experience that I could basically put my brain on a computer and let somebody else proctor it and I didn't have to train my traders. And as you know, as everyone learns that in um, uh, software development, there's three things. There's good, there's fast, and there's cheap. And you mm. get to pick two, okay? So, so most projects, take longer than you expect and are more expensive than you expect if they're going to be good. Um, and I dumped a lot of money into this simulator. And before I knew it, you know, I, I did come up with a you know wonderful product, but twice as long as the engineer said it was going to take and twice as much, you know, I spent over half a million dollars in uh, 87 and 88 to build this. So I took that on the road and that was my next company while um, I traded when I was in town and I was going overseas when the um, uh, um, German and Austrian and Spanish and Swedish markets were all launching electronic. And we were the only ones that had this. And we were teaching people how to be market makers and then started to um, sell our uh, technology, which helped market makers do pricing and risk management. Um, so the, the transition to electronic trading started happening in the late 80s, and we converted my floor operation to what was called a designated primary market maker, which um, there were shops um, on the floor that used the technology to do their market making. And that transition, uh, and my brother, I handed off to my um, brother, my next, not my next youngest brother, but my third youngest brother, John, to manage that. And uh, we had a pretty good, um, for about 10 years, had a pretty good run as a designated primary market maker. And we sold that business um, for about 10 million in 01, right before the market absolutely uh, collapsed. In the meantime, I was building out, um, uh, so I was a partner at uh, Research and Trade, and that was um, uh, a front end system that I barnstormed around uh, Europe and um, in Asia in the 90s, put on over 5 million air miles. Uh, and if you do the math, that's circumnavigating the globe uh, every two weeks um, to, to build these. I had a home in, uh, in Frankfurt. I had a residence in um, Milan. I had a, a condo in Sydney. 
and I shared an apartment with a buddy in Stockholm. Uh, when I when I sold that stuff in 2000, moved everything home. I had four electric razors. I had three uh, mountain bikes that I trained on because I did triathlons in each of these cities, um, and we uh, had businesses set up in 21 countries selling this uh, software on Sun Microsystems. We are a, a Sun Microsystem um, distributor. So the transition happened over that time. I had a one-year non-compete, and in '99. I launched it getting ready for the electronification of uh, trading here in the US. And one of your questions, Chris, was, you know, what um, what was the uh, business idea that you originally had and how did it change from the original vision? And I thought I was going to put all the floor brokers out of business in um, in 2000 with my, my technology. And I didn't realize the power of membership. And these guys all banded together and prevented me from doing what I want, wanted to do. So I pivoted to a, if you can't beat them, join them. And it took my software that I automated to eliminate them and turned it into a tool they could use. And today that is the dominant platform still uh, 18 years, 17 years later from the rollout, um, is handling about a third of the national volume and is the dominant sell-side technology in the listed option space. What's that, what's that called? It's called, the product's called BrokerPoint. My company that I exited in 07 for a quarter of a billion was uh, LiquidPoint. And um, the company that bought it I stayed on for a few years to uh, seven, actually, to manage and grow it. Uh, now it's uh, you know it's probably worth uh, uh, over a half a billion. It's called uh, Dash Financial, and um, that technology we had over two thousand uh, nodes on the platform uh, uh, nationwide, uh, professional uh, brokers and traders, um, and it's still like I, my company today, Matrix Execution. Uh, which I set up a year ago to compete with them because my non-compete ended. That's our main com competition. And it's really weird because I have um, about 17 of my staff today are my former guys from Liquid Point, And our goal is to take down Broker Point, <laughs> our, our own creation, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really, it's really uh, sort of... Uh, strange. And so you you feel that this your your new your new business has enough differentiation that that uh, and, and and the the old product isn't quite what it could be and you, and you believe this new this new uh, matrix execution you're able to create great differentiation to 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 take this to a whole nother level. We believe so. Yes, it's it's fourth generation technology, all built in HTML5, super fast, super flexible, um, but it's like trying to get rid of Ma Bell when everybody has a telephone and you're saying, okay, I've got a new telephone system. And they say, who cares? Um, you know, this one's good enough. So um, uh, we've taken it on the road since uh, the beginning of the year. We just, you know, just launched it. And we're getting um, uh, the comment, no brainer. And uh, now it's just a matter of uh, transitioning those people out of broker point and into uh, we call a QRN quote request network. The QRN product is it's got mobile. It's great. 
So yeah, the difference you're nailing it, Gary. It's about differentiation, uh, the right price points, and also um, leveraging it so that more can be done with less. I hate to say it, but that's been you know workflow automation has been our thing for the last uh, uh, 20 years, and reducing fat finger errors, uh, double key punching things, um, uh, you know side calculations where some of these shops have multiple platforms where we can do the same with one. That's that's basically what we do. So when you think about that, some of the listeners will think, gosh, you know, is that right? You know, Tony builds this product, sells it, and then and then years later competes against it. You know, how is that how is that good ethics in business and all that? Tell me tell me tell me your point on that and I and I know the way I think on that. Let's hear the way you think on that, Tony. On, on whether on, on the ethics of it, or yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. You know, the ethics of competing against a company that you actually uh, you're a big you, pick, you know you started, yes. grew, and then sold, and then years later you you compete against it. Tell us about that. Well, okay, so the key there is you know years later. I, I you know been twelve. It'll be twelve years this July since I sold it, and um, I stayed on seven years to you know grow it, you know substantially. Uh, the folks that, um, I mean, I think a big lesson in this is the uh, seller's remorse that one has when you, um, uh, I'm a builder, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my dad was a builder, I, I, that's in my DNA, I build companies. And um, what I should have done is sold it and walk away and get into something else in 2007, but I stayed on to grow it. I. Uh, the 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 buyers, which was the Bank of New York and a local uh, hedge fund uh, here, or a local private equity firm, sorry, here, um, uh, Governor Rahner's uh, private equity firm, by the way, they uh, before I left seven years later, they had already recouped uh, um, all of that they had paid for my company and about a twenty percent return on top of that. And the company was worth anywhere from uh, one and a half to two times as much uh, of, of what they paid for it. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, they were rewarded handsomely. Um, the ethics part was that I didn't want to compete with um, my, my staff. And a big part of what I do is about um, putting myself in their shoes. Uh, I run my companies like families. And um, I would never compete against the team that I worked with to build that. But once I left, they started leaving. The key guys um, started leaving immediately. My my partner and uh, chief technology officer left within um, six weeks or so after I did. And systematically, the key guys exited. And that, you know, that was four and a half years ago. So I gave them plenty of room to get over anything ethically. Um, and they merged with another company that um, didn't particularly see the same uh, values that, that we sure. did as we built it. And systematically, they got rid of my staff and we welcomed them with open arms. And now it's really, an, it's an inanimate object. It's software that we built that's old. The people are gone. The people that run the company are all people I don't know. 
And uh, I would say when I sold the company, we had um, it was an amazing per head valuation. We had um, 38 people and sold for Q. And um, that, you know, from uh, launch, we launched the product in July of 03 and we had it sold in four years. Um, and, and I made a lot of my staff millionaires because I um, grant everyone um, um, equity and equity warrants. So we're all rowing in the same direction. I, I just got whiplash from that, man. <laughs> Thirty-eight people and and trade and sold for a quarter of a billion dollars. That's 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 awesome. That's amazing. And I and I and I you know I I, I share your uh, your position on this stuff, right? I mean, I mean it's it's like you're uh, you're 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 Tom Brady and you did you you created value in your team and 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 uh, and everybody won and. And you got traded, and and uh, you know what? Ten, ten years later, if Tom Brady, fifty fifty three two three years old, can uh, compete again, he's going to compete again. That's and, true. And that's uh, that that that's that's just that's common business ethics as well as uh, is you know life uh, life morals. You know what? And to add to that, Tony, I want to say too, it shows that you have a lot of loyalty to your people. You said one thing that I think is really important when you run your company like family. I mean, and then the fact that everybody succeeds is really is really keen. Um, I don't think anybody would be a te- like i mean it makes a lot of sense my fe- my family isn't there anymore so now i know what i'm good at i'm gonna bring them over with me and we're still gonna win you know that's pretty cool well you know the thing about it is quentin is that um when i sold when we were going through the uh sales process in um 07 and in drawing up the contracts employment agreements and non-competes i was like well why would i ever want to compete with my own company you know this is crazy i literally kept saying that and thinking that this is nuts i would never do that in fact i would like to stay on and run it and these you know little did i know right and these guys were licking their chops okay um they got me to you know reinvest in my business and run it in an entrepreneurial fashion for a number of years until um, you know, they were, they were process, you know, the company is process oriented private equity and they don't know anything about managing companies except their own probably. But, you know, the company they, they, uh, uh, they put together with us, um, in New York, um, had a, a poor culture and, um, I tried to maintain my own culture, uh, where I have total open door. We, we doubled the headcount within uh, nine months of the sale. And, um, you know, when I left, there was um, close to uh, 90 uh, employees with, uh, you know, close to 400 family members that um, we supported. And like I said, I had guys coming up um, from the floor saying, Saliba, you put my family in a position of of security financial security through your actions you are a lion and uh um i just tried you know i don't know how many um uh over a dozen employee millionaires overnight when we made when we did the transaction they believed in me i believed in them so i didn't never thought about competing with them until that culture changed so much that um there was criminality and a Bermuda office that had nothing to do with us. And, you know, the the private equity firm 
had lost control of the management. Um, it, 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 it was a very bad, very bad situation. So competing with them now is sort of a mandate sure. to replace our old system with the guys that built it, the guys and gals that built it. Uh, we're literally going to be adding three more of former employees. Um, back then when I did this, uh, when, I, when I launched, I was 44 and uh, oldest person in the, in the shop. And most of my team was right out of school or in their 20s. Now, you know, I'll be 64. Same team is in their 40s, but same, you know, aggressive attitude towards business, same camaraderie, same uh, comp plans in place where everybody uh, watches each other's back. We're all rowing in the same direction. I really think that um, uh, you have to care about the people and they, they'll act like owners and that's what you want them to do. And that, that's what I did and that's what I'm doing again. I see, I see it so often, Tony, where um, you know, friends of mine, uh, you know, they end up uh, selling to private equities, whether they stay on or they don't stay on. And, and the culture changes. It's, it, it goes from that entrepreneurial um, uh, aggressiveness, right, and, and innov- innovative mindset to, you know, systems and processes. And, and, and we all need those. We all need systems and processes, but sometimes they outweigh that entrepreneurial spirit. spirit. And once that happens, the, the, the true entrepreneurs and the, and the, and the, and the, and the uh, innovative minds um, aren't comfortable there any longer. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's got to be... Um, uh, you know, continuity, uh, you know, I think my next oldest employee is mm, 10 years younger than me. And we all have the energy, maybe even more energies than some of the new hires of the 20 somethings and 30 somethings. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I completely love your idea of harvesting, uh, you know, folks who share different ideas and different opinions um, that, you know, makes the workplace, you know, more familial. And that's, a you know, I'm not saying we don't have some great rocket science scientists on staff because we do. But for the most part, everybody kind of gets it and everybody is working for the same goal. And we don't have... Um, you know, we all have each other's back, and we don't have conflict in that regard. Well, you know, so, and, and, I'll, and I'll say that you know, I, I, I've uh, I've come to the conclusion that when you when we when we actually love our teammates, right? When you actually love your teammates, compared to, you know, they're they're here, they're a number, and they're get, if they get things done, they're here for a long time, and if they they don't, they're not, right? I mean, I, I, it it's it seems kind of corny, right? But I but when you realize that that these teammates are there at your side. Uh, spending more time in a, of their of their year with you at work, working for the same best interest to to to, to uh, push forward this this value proposition, right? That if you can't love yes. them, if you can't, you know, God says we got to you know love our enemies. If you can't love these people that are around you every day, along you know at, at your side, then boy, you know what, you're gonna have a hard time building the culture you're talking about. And and I don't believe, you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but most private equities firms I see don't don't you don't you don't feel that, you know. Uh, from the from the experience that I've I've seen, I'm sure they're out there, right? But I, don't, I haven't seen it, 
And, and that's something everybody wants. Everybody wants to know that when they, when, when they, whatever they're driving for, there's a why and, and, and there's, there's a, an atmosphere where you have each other's back, like you just said. Um, hey, there's one, one thing I want to get. We're, we're, uh, we want, I, I could go five hours with you, man. This is so much fun <laughs> to listen to this stuff, right? But there's, there's, a, there's a time uh, not long ago when, when uh, President Trump was running for office and, and used a, a story of, of, the, of the Chinese. Do you want to share that with us at all or no? Yeah, that's um, this is pretty crazy. But I don't know if you guys remember, but when 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 Trump was running for office, he he said, you know, in Chicago that, that you know Chi- China is trying to buy the stock exchange. How crazy is that? We can't let them in and all that, right? Well, you know, Trump doesn't always do his his uh, his <laughs> da- his due diligence, right? And this this is one of those cases because oh, I I found, I found out that that Tony was involved in this and asked Tony the story, and, and of course, if Trump would have known the real story, he would have said, wow, this is this is a, another you know. Another American story, not 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 the Chinese are trying to take over the stock exchange, right, Tony? Exactly, Gary. Man, uh, you know, so I've so that was this is so, you know, I, I you know, I'm not as religious of a, a a guy as you are, you know, but I was raised Catholic, went to church religiously while I lived in the house, not so religiously since I've been out of the house, but raised my kids to be, uh, I mean, you know, one of my kids is very, you know, religious and very, you know, but I feel I'm spiritual and go fairly regularly, but I, you know, believe in a higher being and I, you know, believe in the sacraments and I also believe in synchronicity. (laughs) And this um, Thursday is the one year anniversary of this thing ending after uh, after three full years. And the Trump event was right in the middle um, of, of those three years. So I was approached, I left Liquid Point in the fall of 2014. And um, shortly thereafter was approached by a private equity firm, of course, that wanted to buy the Chicago Stock Exchange with a consortium of capital, overseas capital, including Chinese investors, Middle Eastern investors, and some South American investors. And they needed a local guy who knew the marketplace to kind of be the front man and so on and so forth. And there the journey began. Well, the uh, the Middle East, you know, the um, Dubai guys dropped out, the South American guys dropped out, but the Chinese firm stayed involved. And as a background, this company, um, a family-owned company, quite like you and I, Gary, where the, the, the progenitor 20, you know, 1997 started a real estate business in South uh, Western China, Chongqing, and grew it into a uh, material uh, uh, hazardous waste uh, material um, disposal company, a multi-billion dollar company. And his, you know, son, uh, is running one division. It's a very much of a family business. It's not the Chinese government. In fact, completely the opposite. And over time, I spent, uh, I mean, their um, uh, executive vice president um, spent 400 days in America uh, shuttling back and forth trying to get this deal done. Um, quite the opposite. They wanted to get capital out of China. And, and the they loved Chicago. And if anybody from um, the local governments would listen, end up listening to this podcast, 
shame on you because <laughs> you blew this amazing opportunity. So the Chicago Stock Exchange, one of the oldest ex exchanges in the country, um, on a really good day would do le little less than a half of a percent of the national volume. Okay, so it wasn't a big player, but it served some purpose. It employed about 85 people, um, had a great management team, and the the way the Chinese government sets up um, their um, capital movement laws is that you cannot make investments in financial services companies. So you can't buy a, a broker dealer. You can't buy an FCM, which is a uh, a futures clearing merchant, but they but exchanges are not financial services entities. Believe it or not, they're not a broker dealer. <laughs> they're an information. Uh, uh, they're highly regulated, but they're not deemed by the the Chinese government. So here was an opportunity for this uh, entrepreneurial company uh, called the Kaysen Group, um, along with myself and another and a couple other uh, Chicagoans to buy this um, Chicago Stock Exchange, which barely turned a profit. I mean, in 2016, it uh, barely made a million dollars, okay? So for us to pay $20 million for this was getting the shareholders out at a really good price. But in, um, in February of 2016, Donald Trump on a stump speech had a letter uh, that was circulated by a really nasty guy who was Republican from North Carolina. He was not reelected. Um, uh, Robert Pittenger, he didn't do his homework. He was a uh, hypocritical individual because um, Smithfield uh, uh, Food Company, which is the largest processor of pork product in the world is owned by the Chinese, is in his district, and he demonized the Chinese to set up a straw man for his reelection campaign. Mm -hmm. So he wrote a letter and Trump seized on this and on a stump in a stump speech, he, you know, um, said this should not happen. We, you know, keep the Chinese out of the uh, out of the uh, uh, U.S. financial markets. Well, what our plan was, was to bring Chinese customers here to Chicago. They were picking out a building to make their U.S. headquarters here in Chicago. They loved us. They loved the whole thing. And they were going to dump millions and millions of dollars into the Chicago uh, economy. And the revenue, you know, we would have uh, had uh, hundreds of employees the, the plan was grand. And then w we missed getting this done in the Obama administration because they approved the CFIUS, um, which is the um, uh, government organization that uh, is headed up by the heads of the Treasury and uh, you know all, all the main commerce departments, approved the deal. And then it was just for the SEC to rubber stamp it. And we were told by the SEC that they would. But then the election happened and nobody wanted to touch it. Right. And it got. And, yeah, and I, it, 
I remember like it's yesterday because I was like, wait, wait, what Chinese government's going to take over the stock exchange, right? And I remember digging into it after that and find out, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a great, uh, it would have been a great entrepreneurial story. You know, yeah. you, you teamed up with private, private people from all over the world and China, these Chinese uh, billionaires included to really create an environment in, 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 in the Chicago Stock Exchange where it's, it's kind of vibrant again, you know, profitable, vibrant and, and uh, hire, you know, in, in employing many, many people. Uh, would have been huge. And nobody from Chicago helped me. I went to every Politico I know. Nobody would lift a finger. Uh, not Dick Durbin, not Tammy Duckworth. You know, no. The last thing is the parent company of the New York Stock Exchange, Intercontinental Exchange, bought it for about $80 million. So the shareholders, uh, which are mostly Chicagoans, did way better than we did. We realized the value was in it. it. Got caught in this cryptocurrency craze, and then they and and then they basically closed it down. They I think they uh, let go all of the staff except for about six or eight uh, skeletal staff, and they snuffed it out. Wow. So no more revenues for Chicago or Illinois. Thank you very much. Wow! Wow! Okay, so let, let's uh, we we've got a, a few more minutes. I want to cover a couple more, a few more things here. So number one, you know your your vision for the future. I mean, you are a, you're you're a, a, if anybody knows you and they're around you, your energy and, and uh, is amazing. You're you're like a doggone thirty year old and and uh, constantly thinking forward. And that's what I love about you. And and, and you're you know you're always going to be a. a, a uh, just a, just an, a, a, a bunch of energy for anybody to be around you. I believe they're energized, and that's 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 going to be your life for the for the next thirty years, forty years, right? Tell me though, you know, what, what's this? Where's this energy going to take you here in the next few years, in the next ten years? Well, so we have two. Well, <laughs> uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it's mostly focused around um, my businesses, and um, so Matrix Execution is the competitor you know competitor yeah. to my former company that I mentioned I also have a cryptocurrency platform that um, uh, started last year and uh, that is growing major traction I see the digital asset space uh, like it like I saw the option space in the 70s and it's gonna take major uh, toehold um, I'm I'm trying to limit my involvement we have enough you know we have reagan.com as you know and a number of different other businesses insurance company um that it's all family um uh business oriented you're a respected name in the heritage foundation i mean you know that's a great organization i know you're a big part of yes uh, um that's the mothership i feel uh at home when i'm with heritage uh therefore the you know founding principles, first principles of the country, free enterprise, you know financial uh, freedom and um, uh, you know um, free commerce, but also uh, good solid family values and uh, strong America. So I I see you know um, my energies continuing to I mean like you said I feel like I'm 35 I can do a two minute handstand I you know I can do a lot of things that uh, a lot of people half my age can't do physically. I need um, to see that. <laughs> just trying to, uh, you know, keep it together and not get injured. You know, you don't want to, uh, don't want to hurt a knee or, uh, you know, 
uh, when twist you, anything. <laughs> so, so you and I, you and I connect a lot on, the, on the, a lot of the free enterprise, uh, you know, things that we're, uh, you know, that we're behind or we're, we're, we're constantly focused on, worried about what some people aren't worried about as far as the, you know, the, the, the free enterprise world that we're in changing to something, you know, really different and ugly. Um, you know, one, one, one thing I really heard with, with you, and it's a story similar to mine and many that, you know, you, you really earned, you, you really earned your stripes or your, let's say your, your, the, the dignity of work, you learned at a young age and you, in the, f- the fulfillment of earning a buck to, to, to help your family, to, to take your friends out for an ice cream cone, whatever it was, right? The, dig- the dignity that provided value for you was, was an amazing thing as it was for me as a young kid. Uh, I'm, I'm worried, uh, really worried about the, the $15 an hour minimum wage in our state of Illinois and all over the country. It's spreading, spreading across the country. It sounds like a good thing. And, and, I, and, and I know you're a compassionate guy like I am, but our experiences tell us it's a bad thing. I mean, tell, tell me what you think of that, if you agree with me or not. Tell me if you it don't agree with me. Thing. But tell, tell, tell me why. Tell me what, what, why you think it's, it's – I want to know if it's kind of alignment, if you're aligned with what I'm thinking, but yes, it's scary. I, I am. And, you know, I struggle with the concept of disparity, you know, between the haves and have nots. And that is a, you know, the, the old saying, you know, that um, uh, uh, there's, you know, statistics, uh, you know, damn statistics and, and lies and that that that, that uh, liars, you know, will will figure figures don't lie, but liars will figure. So you can look at statistics in any way you want. And when you look at just step back and say there is a wealth disparity, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've moved up and down in different um, uh, brackets, you know, over time. And America allows for mobility. So when you say that there's this underclass that's getting poorer, yes, there's a, um, a wage gap if you look at it that way. But if you tinker with it, you could ruin the whole thing. And I think that there's there's plenty of programs to, to help those who need help. Maybe, you know, the government needs to get out of our way. And having a, a minimum wage will hurt that lower class in terms of you know, people not getting jobs. I mean, what is wrong with working two jobs? I worked two jobs for a long time. My dad worked two jobs pretty much till he retired, okay? Uh, it, it's it's not um, uh, preferable to um, having one job and making enough to live within your means, and in his case was raising kids that were expensive or whatever, but um, I think the um, tinkering with the minimum wage is is very uh, uh, detrimental. Um, I I think the big and we could have a whole, whole session on this. The big culprit is higher education. Okay, the big evil culprit in our society are colleges and universities because if you look at prices from. 1980 to today, nothing, nothing, nothing has grown like the price of a higher education. It is a ripoff. You go to these better schools for the sheepskin, but you can get their course content in a MOOC online for free. But you don't get the sheepskin. 
And I think, and I think that's going to consistently change over the course of the next 10, 15 years, and, and, and it's going to drastically uh, sh- shape a, a different culture in education. And, uh, and again, back, back to the minimum wage, for me, my, my opinion is that first rung of the ladder that I needed to go, to go deliver newspapers and mow lawns, I mean, uh, the first rung of the ladder was easy for me back then to understand how to make a buck, right, at, at very, very minimal pay. But, man, I, I understood what it, what it took to make a buck at a 10 years old, 11 years old. And the kids today don't have that opportunity. And if we take that opportunity away from them at 15, 16, 17, 18, golly, they, they get out of, out, of, out of school, out of college, and never really worked in, in, a, in a job to understand what it takes to make a buck. That, that, that's, a, that's a big disadvantage for them in, their, in the future of their life to, to understand what, you know, what grit looks like, what duplication looks like, and all the cool things you can learn in a minimum wage job. Um, so I, I worry that that it'll be a lot less opportunities for jobs for kids as we continue to make this make this a, a, a political um, deal, you know. Absolutely, but you're doing things. I'm doing things. People like us are doing things to continually reach down, reach out, and and try to change that. Um, you know, organization near and dear to your heart and mine. You know, Turning Point USA. Um, you know, helps uh, spread you know, um, the, the great understanding of free enterprise. Uh, so, you know, together, I think we can make it through it, but it's the minimum wage is um, a $15 minimum wage will cost jobs. And I really think that um, there are programs to prevent uh, the youth from being saddled with uh, unbelievable college uh, tuition debt and such that really that, that will help um, uh, well we're gonna we're gonna keep on working on that buddy that's for sure now tell, tell, tell me this now you know last you know last thing and if you got anything else that you share great but uh, you know when I, when I look at your story it, it's a true you know American story and a great American story of entrepreneurship you know when you think about this I mean I, you know, I, I you know you're a smart guy and you're and you're you're hardworking and all the other things you know, how would this look if you were if you're born in a in a country unlike America, in in your opinion, and 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 you know, the, where do you feel that that uh, you know the free enterprise system has allowed you to do what you do? Well, during those uh, travel years of uh, eighty nine to ninety eight, I you know when I spent so much time in in uh, twenty one com- countries. I mean, I did I, I I signed contracts in Kuala Lumpur and in Hong Kong, as I mentioned. Uh, Mexico. So I can tell you firsthand that um, uh, with the exception of Australia, I mean, even in Great Britain, there was a lot more difficulty, uh, less freedom. But Australia was very much maybe I could have done what I did in in Sydney um, because I I had, uh, you know, there was a lot of freedom there as opposed to every other country I operated in during those 10 years. Um, there's nothing like America. Why do you think, you know, I mean, I know you know the answer, but why do you think everybody's trying to get in here? So mm-hmm. um, the, the, um, the Heritage Foundation publishes a index every year, the index of um, economic freedom. And I, I urge everyone to go and check that out because it shows in very much detail, we are not the most economically free country no. but that that index shows a lot of you know um, it has a taxation and other things so it's harder 
today than it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago in America. But we are, you know, we're in the top 10. Um, but I did business in Switzerland, and that's near the top. It, it would not be as easy for an entrepreneur. I think the can-do spirit in the U.S., where guys like you, myself, will help other entrepreneurs um, overcome some of the regulatory morass that we've had during, you know, the last 20 years. And, and Trump is chopping that down, too. That's, that's why it's been easier uh, the last couple of years. Well, here you go. Here's a guy that, uh, you know, Trump, uh, Trump's message undermined a, a huge opportunity in your life, right? But yet, but yet you're, uh, you're pretty blunt in, in saying, hey, the stuff that's going on now is great for business entrepreneurship uh, and your future and our, all our futures. That declaration and everything that followed after that cost uh, me and my my family office that was going to do the deal with the Kaysen Group at least $20 million. I don't harbor any ill will. I understand what was going on. We had other opportunities maybe to get under the wire with the Obama administration. I do blame our local politicians and state politicians for not lifting a finger. They hated Trump then. They hate him now. So they were not going to do anything that might have looked like he was going to get a win. And all they had to do was sneak this one over the line. Um, that one congressman from North Carolina was the arch yeah. villain in that regard. But, you know, there's always opportunities. I just spent, you know, better part of three years of my life to do it, Gary. And I, you know, I'm sad about that. I'm sad for Chicago and Illinois. So Right. Well, you know, you're you're always going to find opportunity continually, and it, it, you know, we we all know that everything doesn't work out. It doesn't work out, and we'll keep keep fighting. But uh, anything else you can think of, Q? What do you, what else you got, buddy? Uh, Man, this was this was good. Um, you know, I got I got some amazing takeaways from Tony. Some Quentin True takeaways. You know, uh, one of them, and actually a couple of them, uh, is keen to thinking like you thinking, my friend. Like one, be the first to come and the last to leave. That was really good as far as thinking about success. And one thing you said, and I agree with you, Tony, from a mentor's perspective, uh, pull whatever you can out of whoever you can. Uh, I think that was that was pretty key. Um, another thing that you said as far as your, your journey and how, how you got some of the success, prepare every night and do your homework religiously. Um, I think a lot of people forget it's not about the will to win. It's about the will to prepare. And the, the key moment of that is extremely true. And I think that's part of what you have while you have. And, but you keep, you keep saying this phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. So yes. obviously I had to write that down because it must be true. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, um, as far as when it comes to any success, you know, anything that's a need out there, you're looking for a problem to solve. And my friend, you've done that. Um, and a couple of other things, differentiation, price point, and do more with less, uh, obviously is true. I think a lot of people try to do so much so soon. Um, but if you could do more with less, man, you can specifically now, especially now, is extremely important. But the last thing, and I think I'll uh, heed to what some of the things you all talked about, regardless of how you feel, uh, still today, there's no place like the USA. And um, yes. and uh, my man, uh, I, I would agree with you in that regard. So that was some of my true well, takeaways, man. So I, I would only add one more, and you're, you're and, and uh, which was uh, you know you, you can only pick you pick two. You get three. There's three things: good, oh, yeah. fast. And right? cheap. And cheap. <laughs> you, and can you can only, only pick, pick two. two of them. That's and boy, right. that, that's, that's a great point. In business, you know, to have all three of those probably, yeah. probably is going to work out in the long run. Absolutely. And next time we talk, I'll tell you about I, I invented Uber and I, um, I, I have the, um, 
the blueprints and the software, and I did it all in 2003 and with my team, but I was four years um, early to the party with uh, there was no smartphone, there was no global tracking, there was no personal, but I, I built it all out. It was gonna work on uh, laptops and uh, browsers at home, and I went around to Chicago and talked to the cab companies to uh, help. It was going to. Uh, it was designed to bring the market forces from options and futures trading in Chicago to the cab industry, <laughs> and I was shot down systematically by every group. Wow. So much so they felt I was going to approach on them, and and this was in. Um, Early night, early 2004, and so I went out and got a full-time driver. All right, Tony. Well, you know what? You know what, Tony? Let 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 me and you find a time to sit down and talk about it over lunch. And I love to get a lot of that information oh, man, right there. Awesome, yeah. Yeah. You you bet, Quentin. When you want to uh, <laughs> come to you, you come to me. We'll meet in the middle. Whatever. Let's do that. Awesome. I well, love Tony, it. Tony, uh, thanks a lot, buddy. You uh, you're everything I, I I know you are, and uh, it's it's really exciting to to be friends with you and watch you watch you continue to kick butt and uh, and and continue to build that vision for the future, how, how you're going to solve problems in the future. So thank thanks a lot for being part of this, man. It's it's uh, it's a pleasure to, to to spend the time with you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Quinn. Thanks, Chris. And we'll thanks. see. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll see you next time on Ditch Digger CEO. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share it with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Ditch Digger CEO and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. became the CEO man.